Hello, this is Jen Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. Welcome to the program. Before we get to this week's guest, I wanted to talk about what else? Donald Trump. And specifically, how one combats, how one confronts Donald Trump. How one does not confront Donald Trump is what we saw, unfortunately, in his Meet the Press interview. I don't so much blame the reporter, Kristen Welker, who I think gave it her best. But I think the broadcast and the cable news shows are confused. They have to treat Trump like a defendant on the stand. What they need is a prosecutor, not a journalist whose job is to appear charming and light and put the guest at ease and make sure there are no gaps in the conversation. They have to get a bulldog, someone who's going to go in there, hit a lie, and then come with the receipts. The only reporter, the only journalist who I've ever seen come close to this uh, in the past was Tim Russert, uh, the late great ten, Tim Russert from Meet the Press, and also Mehdi Hassan, who has done this consistently, not with Trump, but with others on MSNBC. You have to bore down on a specific lie and then come back with the tapes, with the previous statements with the evidence. Because if you don't, what happens is he filibusters, he lies, he runs on and on and on. Now, granted, sometimes he does trip himself up. After all, in the interview, he sort of confessed that he doesn't really listen to his lawyers. He goes with his gut. And that's damaging from a legal perspective because one of his defenses is going to be advice of counsel. I was just following the lawyer's advice. Well, that excuse is now out the window. So that's not to say that we don't get some valuable information when Trump is blathering on. But if the point is to confront, the point is to expose, the point is to reveal to the American people that this guy, first of all, is incoherent and mentally unstable. And secondly, that he is ultimately a fascist. You're not going to get it by doing the normal sort of interview. And you're really not going to get it by pretending he cares about policy, by asking him, what excites you about policy? You know what excites him? Getting back in power and pardoning himself and wreaking vengeance on his enemies. So I come back to this again because it's important that we not get into the habit of treating him like an ordinary candidate. Now, once in a while, we get handed a gift. And I'll just tell this between you and us so it doesn't get out to the larger audience. But there is such a gift that may have been handed to us. Trump says he's going to skip the next Republican debate. Note, surprise there. He might be actually asked something that isn't familiar or helpful, or Chris Christie might deliver a blow. Instead, he's going to go and give a talk to the UAW workers. Now, that's an interesting prospect. UAW workers, hmm. Well, if he gives them a chance to ask questions, or even if he doesn't, even if there's just an audience where they can shout out, they should take advantage of that. Because unlike a professional journalist, first, they can use obscenity. And secondly, they can ask some really hard questions. How come you don't support a minimum wage increase? How come you had the most anti-National Labor Relations Board in history? How come you took overtime away from a whole class of managers, mostly in retail people? How come this president passed 
infrastructure and green energy that's giving us union jobs, and you say you're against those things. On and on. If you have a real person confronting him, he'll be, I suspect, less able to wriggle around. Because in fact, real people don't have these hangups that journalists do. They don't have lots of dependent clauses. They don't give him open-ended questions. They ask something specific, and they're willing to call bullshit on him when he doesn't answer, and when he gives back a lie. So for all of you out there who are a member of the UAW, or know someone who's a UAW member, or can reach someone who's a UAW member, I would suggest that they get their list of questions and their lists of comments ready for Donald Trump. Because in a situation like that, it may be the only time we get a direct answer from him, and the only time he has taken off guard. Because he has become so accustomed to running rings around the press that when confronted with a real human being, someone whom he is trying to ingratiate himself with, it may be rather off-putting when they come back and point out that he is the least person, the last person that union members should want in the White House. And this, of course, is the great falling, uh, the great failing of Donald Trump, is that the things he is saying are not popular with the vast majority of people. They are not popular with the electorate at large. They appeal to a tiny segment of people who are marinated in the juice, in the toxic juice of Fox News and other right-wing outlets. So while the UAW members are out there, maybe a woman from the UAW, and there are many of them, might ask him, why have you taken away the women's right to choose? Why have you allowed states to pass bans that, that prevent us from getting critical medical care? Let's confront him, um, my fellow Americans, when you have the chance, when you are in settings like this, whether it's labor, whether it's abortion, whether it's guns, why are you in the pocket of the NRA? Why aren't you in favor of reasonable gun control? Use those opportunities to confront him and to catch him. Because sadly, I must say, my fellow members of the media are not going to be the ones to expose Donald Trump. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen because a regular, ordinary human being comes up to him and says something or accuses him of something for which he does not have a ready answer. So aside from trials, I think we're going to have to rely on one another to pin down Donald Trump. So without further ado, we're going to go to our guest. I am delighted this week to have a very special guest, Diane McWhorter. Although she may not be a household name, she should be, because her book, Carry Me Home, Birmingham, Alabama, The Climactic Battle of the Civil Rights Revolution, is one of the seminal books about mid-century America, about the civil rights movement and that whole period of American history. It ranks up there with Taylor Branch's trilogy. It ranks up there with Robert Caro's series on LBJ. It is a must read, and we are delighted to have Diane because, unfortunately, her book is very relevant today. So welcome to the show, Diane. Thank you, Jen. You grew up in Birmingham. Tell us what you were aware of at the time and how much you knew about your father's politics 
as you were growing up? Well, I always say that I grew up on the wrong side of the revolution. Um, my father, who was an embarrassment to me in this sort of country club environment that I was living in, he had been sort of the rogue uh, son of his family and had gone on this downwardly mobile path and was always embarrassing me. Um, what I came to, and, I was, and he would, at night, sometimes he would say he was at civil rights meetings. And by that, he meant he was out stopping the civil rights movement. Um, and I was, I was afraid he it belonged to the Klan. But honestly, at the time, I was such a conformist that I was more afraid that he was going to do something to embarrass me than that he was going to do something immoral. <laughs> I was more worried about illegal than immoral. And so um, that was sort of the... Uh, uh, the impetus that I would say the emotional impetus for my writing the book is to try to figure out what he was doing. And then what I just sort of the short version is that what I ended up concluding was that instead of being an anomaly or, or sort of a, a, an outlaw, he was more of the, the id representation of the polite society that he had grown up in. And then, and then the, the sort of civic analogy to that was that the clan, the Ku Klux Klan, had been the uh, the actors, the enforcers for the, uh, the the country clubbers and the industrialists in in extremely literal ways that shocked me, honestly. And that was, I think, what was so fascinating about the book, and is so representative of, frankly, fascist and authoritarian regimes, where you have rich industrialists, you have the thugs on the street, you have the impassive goers along. And then, of course, you have the official police. Describe a little bit about how these factions work together when you had the country club set that was in many ways socially, culturally, economically so different than the Klansmen who were sort of doing their dirty work for them. Right. Uh, well, well, so Birmingham was uh, proudly called itself the Pittsburgh of the South, and it was the, the heavy manufacturing mecca of the South. Um, and because of that, it had a, a tradition of labor unions. And my theory about why Birmingham became the sort of center of the revolution was because there had been this tradition, this democratic tradition, uh, organized tr uh, labor early on to, to stand up against uh, what Hugo Black liked to call organized money. And so initially in the 30s, the, um, the industrialists, the vigilantes who were fighting to, to stop the, the labor unions from organizing were on staff. Um, one of the, the, one of the big cataclysms, uh, that sort of has relevance today was, uh, section 7A of the National Industrial Recovery Act that Roosevelt passed, which put the, the backing of the federal government behind, uh, workers' rights to organize and, and, and uh, bargain collectively. And so the, UMW, United Mine Workers Organizers in particular, came south saying the president wants you to join the union. And this just was just upended the industrialist world because they basically saw the workers as an extension of their property, of, of their personal property. So initially, the, um, the uh, vigilantes, the leg breakers were on staff and they would, uh, th when organizers would come to town, they would take them out on what they called fishing trips beat them up, um, tell them to get out of town. Uh, and then what happened was they beat up the wrong person. His name was Joe Gelders, and he was the 
the very idealistic son of a, a prominent Jewish family in Birmingham. And he had actually joined the Communist Party. He was a secret communist. And he had come back home to, uh, to Birmingham to organize. And when he, when they beat him up and he had permanent heart uh, damage from, from the, from that fishing expedition, um, the, the uh, government, the, the new, the, the FDR's government it took notice and they started holding these hearings, the La Follette Committee, um, started holding uh, hearings about this. And all this stuff came out about the, about U.S. Steel in particular's uh, network of, uh, leg breakers, uh, spies, um, propagandists, um, and, and they're con and, and owning basically the law enforcement, um, uh, agencies. And so then after that, they decide we can't have the vigilantes on our staff anymore. So then they, they found this excellent political proxy named Bull Connor and people who know this history at all know that Bull Connor becomes the sort of, you know, cartoon villain of the civil rights movement, unleashing the dogs and fire hoses on um, the Martin Luther King's child demonstrators. But in the meantime, he had become sort of the, the go-between between the industrialists and the, um, and the Ku Klux Klan. Now, I know this sounds sort of like left-wing agitprop, but and when I went into this book, um, I had, you know, I came in with certain like liberal assumptions about what was happening, but I, but I thought more that the country club had shared interests with the Klan, but it turned out that there was actual, there were actual connections and the right. industrials provided legal representation for the Klan when they got into trouble. They, you know, actually sort of, you know, gave orders through, um, or provided money, you know, to these, uh, front organizations like neighborhood organizations to stop desegregating, uh, neighborhoods. And so it was like any, any, I found when in the course of doing this book that any, any sort of terrible thing that I imagine happened, the truth turned out to be so much worse. Exactly. And that was what was so revealing. It was also, the book was also revealing about what it showed on the civil rights side of the equation. There was always the accusation from Hoover, from segregationists, that this was all a communist plot. Well, it turns out there were a few communists in the closet there. Not that this was uh, communist-inspired, they were reporting to Moscow, but there were some people who had a left-wing background. And there also were some real tensions within the movement between younger activists and King, between people who had had a left-wing background and people who saw this as a threat. Tell me a little bit about how you kind of tease that out. That, that's a richness that we don't always get from histories of the civil rights movement that are painted as one big happy family all marching towards justice together. Yeah, well, sort of the, the, the framework of my book is class, class divisions. So that was also true in the African-American community. So there's there, in, in addition to the classes versus the masses, the country club and the, and the Klan and the labor movement, in the black community too, there was like a big division between the black working class and the black middle class. And so the, I, the other assumption I had when I was going into the book was I had, I had knew that Birmingham had been the deep South headquarters of the American communist party. And so what I had always heard was that the preachers, the black preachers ran them out of town. And I thought that this was a sort of great thing, principal thing. So then 
I go, you know, I get into the book and I realize that actually the Communist Party was were basically the only people advancing civil rights at that time. In fact, civil right, the term civil rights was a left wing term at that point. If you use that, you were you were sort of uh, identified as leftist. Um, most people refer to it as the Negro question. And so, um, so the and, and and yes, the uh, the black ministers did fight against the the Communist Party, and they were mostly organizing unemployed workers. Um, that that was sort of the best they could do. Um, but they were having these big demonstrations in town, and so the, so yes, the, the the black ministers who were sort of in the pocket of a lot of, of the white industrialists did speak up against them, and interestingly. Fred Shuttlesworth, who became the the leader of the civil rights movement in Birmingham, and he was sort of Martin Luther King's foil, and really, you know, other half in, in the movement took over one of the church that the communists had had who had a minister that the communists had sort of ganged up on and forced out, and the preachers and and when the um, the communists ganged up on him, the, the the preacher had asked the cops to provide him guards and they, he wasn't useful to them anymore, to the industrial anymore. So they, they wouldn't. And then he ends up leaving. Charlesworth is such an interesting character, tragic in many ways, in his kind of push-pull with Dr. King, um, and somewhat now overshadowed by history. Tell us a little bit about him and what you learned that may have surprised you, not only about him as a person, but about the relationship he had with King. Well, he was definitely the un-King. And um, again, when I uh, went into the book and had read about uh, about Shuttlesworth, he was always portrayed as sort of a sideshow. And he was so uh, kind of impetuous and brave. He was he was known as the wild man for Birmingham um, within the movement. Usually that was a compliment. Sometimes it wasn't because he he had he literally tried to get himself killed, he said. His church had been bombed um, by the Klan, probably under under orders from Bull Connor, who was making a comeback for office at that point, um, in on Christmas of 1956. And he had survived the bombing. And after that, he he thought that that God had saved him. So after that, he thought that God was going to protect him. And he, you know, just did things that that nobody else would. And and a lot of ministers, especially ministers of big churches, who were kind of temperamentally uh, you know, inclined not to to rock the boat, really, really didn't want to uh, to hook up with him. So, um, but what I discovered was that he was he was not a sideshow at all. He was the one. He was the first person who, um, in in King's group that I could find. I mean, definitely in King's group, but but across the board that I could find who 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 organized um, direct action. As opposed to passive resistance, the Montgomery bus boycott, which had launched King into the leadership, um, had taken place, you know, a, a year long boycott in 1956 in Montgomery. That had been passive resistance. They were not breaking any laws. They just stayed off the buses. 
when the Supreme Court ruled on that, that, that Montgomery had to desegregate its buses, well, they didn't desegregate the buses in, in, in Birmingham. So shuttles were said, we're going to ride the front of the buses. So that was the first instance of direct action that I could find. So he's sort of this militant. And King was, and, and Shuttlesworth was not interested in dealing with white people. And he was, and he had this, he had the only mass movement going through the 50s. Um, the the Al- state of Alabama had outlawed the NAACP. So as a result of that, Shuttlesworth had started this organization that was, they called the movement. It's called the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights, but it was the movement for short. And so he was really the only person who had a mass movement going. King, and it's not like he, the movement would have happened without King, not at all. And, and Shuttlesworth understood that. And he, and King was really essential to be able to speak to the black classes as well as masses, as well as to white people. And so the two of them were just an excellent team. And the, the big three in the movement were um, King, Ralph Abernathy, and Shuttlesworth. And Abernathy was just basically a rubber stamp for King. And so, so really it was Shuttlesworth and, and King. And, and that's what I, that's what sort of emerged from my research that he was, there, there was no one like him. Um, there had been some other militant ministers who joined with King, but then they dropped out of, of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which, uh, which is the organization they all founded. And Shuttlesworth is pushing for direct action. King is not so sure. He, he's not even in Birmingham. And along come these kids, these kids from who had started the sit-in movement um, in uh, Carolina, who had um, named themselves SNCC, um, S-N-C-C. And he finds a common cause with them, that young people, and when we're saying young people, we're talking about kids who are in high school and even younger, they come together in this remarkable alliance at a point at which, frankly, the movement could have died in Birmingham. They were getting practically nowhere. And they get the idea that the stick people who are committed to direct action and Shuttlesworth are going to kind of join forces. So take the story from there and how close the movement came to really kind of like stalling out. That was a surprise to me as well. Well, we, so the, when King came into Birmingham, decided, finally agreed to, to come into Birmingham, Shuttlesworth had been goading him for years. Uh, you know, come meet the lion in his lair is what they said about Bull Connor. And, um, and frankly, they were afraid they were going to get killed. No, nobody wanted to take on Birmingham. And what had happened was that they had been in Albany, Georgia, pronounced Albany in, in the native tongue there. Um, they'd been in Albany, and that had been a really, really successful movement, except for one thing. It failed. Um, but they had, it had galvanized the entire black community. Um, you know, people, it, it, it was just a, a wonderful uh, coming together of, of tactics, they'd done demonstrations and everything, but they made the mistake of targeting um, the city, the politicians, and in Birmingham, they, they realized they had to target the, the, the weak link of the power structure, which was the department stores, um, and they had, to, they had to target the economic powers as opposed to the political powers who weren't going to commit suicide by getting rid of segregation. Um, so, um, but the, so he finally... Shelter finally gets King to come to Birmingham in the spring of 1963. And there were a lot of things 
a lot of things happened, including that Bull Connor was voted out of office but refused to leave. But that turned out to be a great gift. But anyway, but the the movement is faltering. Um, King got himself arrested on Good Friday and went to jail, uh, wrote his now sacred text, the letter from Birmingham jail. But um, at the time, they couldn't get it published. Uh, You know, it just sort of died uh, until after the success of Birmingham. And so the at that point, only adults had been um, uh, demonstrating, and they had all signed cards to how many, how many days they were willing to go to jail before being bailed out. And um, it was just drying up because they, it just seemed to be failing. Uh, the, the adults were afraid of losing their jobs. There was just a lot of pressure. And uh, finally, the SNCC, the, the, the guy that, that um, King had actually poached from SNCC, James Bevel, came in and organized the kids. Shuttlesworth was the only one of the elders who was on board immediately. And in fact, King, it was a very controversial move to let the kids go out in the street. And King was still in his silk pajamas at the gas <laughs> right. hotel trying to decide whether to let them uh, hit the streets when they did. They were already exactly. And what's so great about this book is it shows, you know, it takes a village to have a movement. Everybody has their own specific role. If the kids and the kids' parents weren't willing to let them go, if Shuttlesworth hadn't been there, if King hadn't been there, frankly, if Bull Connor had left office when they decided to change the format of city government and left, it might not all have come together. And you do have this sense that none of this was foreordained. It there was nothing that was going to guarantee success. And I felt as I was reading this, like I was on this roller coaster. I knew how it came out, but yeah. it was sort of death defying at times and scary. Because oh, well, thank you so much. There was no well, success. Yeah. Well, I had, I know that when I was writing it, um, I, you know, you have to hold, when you're writing narrative, you have to hold two things in your head at once. One is that you know how it's going to turn out because that's why you're writing what you're writing. But when you're writing it, you have to write it as if you don't know how it's going to turn out. And that's, and that's what I always tell kids when I talk to them is that nobody knows at the time how it's going to turn out, but everything kind of counts, you know? Yeah, it really is. It really was amazing. So ultimately the store owners broke down and there's, an interesting, um, of course, tension between them two, people who didn't want to, people who wanted to break down, but eventually they're successful. Same year, you fast forward to August, you have the March on Washington, um, which gets this national uh, attention. And then comes September 15, 1963. We just passed, of course, the 60th anniversary. This is perhaps the most emotional moment, I think, of the civil rights movement, something about these four little girls in the 16th Street Baptist Church somehow broke through the noise and the politics. Tell me how you kind of teased out this story, which really was not known at the time, wasn't even known 10 years later, 15 years later, and how you kind of almost minute by minute, figured out this narrative that takes us through this heart-rending story of the murder of these four little girls. 
Well, the the big challenge journalistically um, for the book was the church bombing because it, it, nobody ever really got the narrative of what had happened. Um, there had been a, a prosecution of uh, the ringleader, Dynamite Bob Chambliss, who was Bull, Bull Connor's sort of liaison to the Klan um, in 1977. Um, but everything was – none of the, the – principles had ever talked. Nobody turned to state's evidence and um, nobody really had the story. So the, I knew that there, that the, that a, a set of the FBI's bombing file, which was called bat bomb for Baptist bombing um, existed. And I had to wait it out and get a lot, just do a lot of sort of maneuvering to get a copy of that. And so um, the only way I was, so the way I was able to sort of put together and, oh, and then that file did not have the informants reports. And the, it, so the, the FBI file had all the, the suspects and, but it didn't say how they knew that, that they were the, why they were suspects, what information they had on them. So from that, I had to, I got out of a, a friend who had, who had done the, had worked on the 1977 prosecution out of his uncle's, uh, garage. He had taken those uh, files, and that's how I got the informant file. So that's how I sort of knew who had told what on what what these players were doing. So that's sort of how I was able to to piece it together. But if you read it, if, you know, if you're a journalist, will recognize all the tricks that you have to do when you don't have, you really don't have the goods, and you have to sort of just put it together circumstantially, and you have to be really careful about um, you know citing things and attributing things. So. I think I, I put together, you know, the best narrative of, of what happened. But again, nobody ever, nobody's ever come forward to say, you know, sort of what the TikTok was. Um, right. So, yeah, so that was, and I, I the, the files were thousands of pages long. And so I had to do a, an index card file with cross references on everything to be, oh, and, and I could also like take it back into the, the 50s and 40s as well from those files. Um it was, that was enormously helpful. One of the things we learned, particularly because of the informants, was that the FBI had this informant, in particular Tom Rowe, who was supposed to be providing information. But in fact, he was quite complicit in a lot of the violence and perhaps the bombing itself. Did you know about Tom Rowe? And how did you react when you figured out um what role he was playing that the FBI kind of just let him go on um, because they needed to have an informant and he was making reports to them periodically. Yeah. Tom, yeah. He was, um, he was kind of a famous guy because he was, expo- he was, he testified in, in, during the church committee hearings when they right. looked into the right. plan and, and had been exposed as sort of a double agent when he, uh, during the, the Selma to Montgomery march, he had been on the car of Klansmen who shot and killed Viola Liuzzo, who was the activist from Detroit, who would come down to the march. And so, um, at that point, he's, and then, and then later on, the Klansmen in that car who had been convicted on federal charges, uh, said that Roe had been the trigger man, which is probably not true, but I think we can also pretty much say that he could have prevented it from happening. Um, the church bombing, so Tommy Rowe had was a uh, like a lot of people. I he was definitely a, a sociopath, probably a psychopath, but but sort of smart. And 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 I had to when I was writing that character, I had to 
think so he had been the informant who told the FBI about the the plot um, in 1961 between the Birmingham police and his clan to attack the Freedom Riders, which was the group of of integrated uh, bus riders who were went through the South to test a new Supreme Court ruling um, uh, outlawing segregation in interstate terminals. And so Roe had told the FBI about this uh, about this plot that that was going to ha- that that he that, that the police and the Klan were doing to to beat them up. And the FBI not only didn't didn't do anything to stop it, but after it happened, they didn't arrest any of Roe's uh, comrades. They, they, a few, the, the few arrests that were made were people who weren't part of that, that clan organization. And it was because they didn't want to blow his cover and, and, and Roe was, picture was in the newspaper and everything. So I, I think of this as sort of the slippery slope, um, you know, school of, of quote shit happening really big time, yeah. you know? And, um, so, and so, so the way I sort of imagined that when I was writing it, it was like, wow. What if they had the the FBI had acted on Rose intelligence at that time? Would he, yes. you know, would he have? I mean, maybe it would have exposed him. But would would could things have turned out any worse? Because the the same people in that clan ended up bombing the church, and right. you know, and had the FBI stopped them at the time, maybe those girls would be alive. Um, so yeah, so so Roe was 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 one of the. It, He's one of the more fascinating characters from this. Book. He really is. He really is. And what, by the way, on the 61 um, attack on the Freedom Riders, this is a perfect example of how the Klan and the police worked hand in hand. They essentially said, give us 20 minutes mm-hmm. and we'll do our thing. And that's how many of these people came very close to, to death, frankly. So fast forward a bit, you have this phenomenal TikTok, including I love the woman who makes the little note of the car and the license plate, and that doesn't come out till years and years because she's forgotten about it. I mean, this is, it's so phenomenal, you can't make it up. Um, but essentially the, the crime does not go completely investigated and solved. Um, by the way, during the same year, you had the murder of Medgar Evers, um, then comes along many decades later, Doug Jones. Why did Doug Jones take this on? And why was he able to do what hadn't been done in the trial in the 70s, which was still delayed? That was more than a decade after the event. What did Doug Jones do and how did he do it? Well, to be fair, um, the FBI had already reopened the case before Doug was, um, and Doug is a, had became a close friend as a result of this, of his prosecution of this. Um, the FBI had been very resistant to, to helping the state with the 1977, uh, case. And, um, by the time an FBI agent named, I think Rob Langford, uh, had come to Birmingham it was before Doug was named U.S. attorney by Bill Clinton and had gone to the black community and said, um, we're, tr- we're trying to do better, you know, better relations. And what can we do? And they said this church funding has never been solved. And so 
the FBI had already reopened the case. Um, and so w when Doug was appointed, he, he took it over now and not to take away any credit from Doug. He really, he really made it happen. And, um, they, the, the, the evidence that they, they got the indictments on, uh, was, was pretty thin initially. And then this, um, this tape becomes available of one of the, the bombers, Tommy Blanton, who's also a little bit of a tragic figure in the book. I mean, it, he's, he's so, uh, egregious that it's hard to have sympathy for him, but he, you know, he was like, he hated Catholics. He, he, he harassed Catholics. And it turned out that his mother was a Catholic and she died when he was a boy. And, you know, so there's all sorts of Freudian stuff going on with him. And, um, so anyway, uh, there's a tape of Tommy Blanton talking to his girlfriend. Um, she may have been his wife at that point, um, talking about, going down to the river to plan the bombing. And, and it's, it's just one of these, uh, sort of sickeningly, uh, ludicrous tapes because she's, she's mad because he broke the date with her, a date with her. And she thought he was with another woman. And instead he's, he's planning to bomb the church and that, but she's more upset about, you know, him, him lying to or cheating on her. Um, so that becomes available after they've gotten the indictments. So they were, so, uh, so Doug, Doug did a, did a really great job uh, of getting that conviction, but in a way it's sort of like history was ready for it to happen. I mean, it, it was almost like the, 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 the outcome of that trial was, was foreordained in a way. Um, I mean, it was, it was definitely a legitimate verdict, but um, you know, it would have, people were ready to punish them at right. that point. I'm curious about, the FBI and the Justice Department. On one hand, they were better than the police. On the other hand, the FBI was very conflicted in all of this. They were supposed to be protecting people, but they let their informant run wild. Meanwhile, Jade Hoover, of course, is intimidating, taping, getting dirt on, trying to discredit Martin Luther King. You have very good people like Burke Marshall, who was there on behalf of the Justice Department. Were the individual people conflicted? How did you kind of um, come out in terms of the FBI? Were there good guys and bad guys or were these people of mixed minds? Tell me a little bit about kind of your final take on the FBI in this whole scenario. On, on the actual agents? I think, yeah. as, okay, so I think that it's sort of, I think they saw the, in a way they saw the Klan as, or certainly as, as certainly Roe as our, our sons of bitches kind of, you know, um, yeah. I don't think, you know, there's sort of a, there's sort of a natural affinity um, between, in, in between the mafia and the police, you know, and the, and the Klan and the, and the police. So they're sort of, in a way they, they, they understand each other on a certain level. And so I think that a lot of it was just expediency. And at the time that they made these decisions that turn out to have catastrophic consequences. So for example, when they see that Roe, Gary Thomas Rowe's picture has been taken beating up 
one of the passengers of a of a, the bus coming into Birmingham. It wasn't even a freedom rider. It was just a, a garden variety passenger who happened to be black. And when they say that in the paper, his back is to the camera, but he set, tells him it's him. And it's, you know, he's recognizable to them. And, and their first, uh, their first response is, Oh God, the old man better not find out, meaning J. Edgar Hoover. So their, their, their priority is to not get caught, not get in trouble with the boss. And so it's sort of this very human reaction that a lot of us might make if we don't know where it's going to be leading. That's what I mean. There's nobody knows how it's going to turn out. And so, exactly. you know, they may have made another, uh, they may have made another decision. I know that one, one thing that, you know, you know, there's, um, I mean, Hannah Arendt writes about this a lot too, is that there, there's a whole category. These are like Nazi war criminals too, where people who've done terrible things, but nobody in the community, they, they can live in the community and nobody's afraid they're going to hurt them. So I think the yeah. FBI in a way had that attitude toward the Klan was that they're, they're not going to hurt us. Uh, they're not going to, they're after somebody else. Um, and they felt, you know, so, and that was sort of their, their orientation. Um, I know that, for example, the, um, the guy who was, the Klansman who was suspected of building the bomb, and he's also like a major character in that he ties the, um, he ties the Klan's bomb making skills to the industrialists because the, the coal, uh, the coal miners knew how to handle dynamite. That was the tool of the trade. Right. And so a statistically improbable number of the violent Klansmen had come out of this coal company that had become the sort of the icon of anti-unionism in the thirties is the DeBar Laban family. And um, one of their, the grant, one of their descendants grew up with me in Birmingham and became a big um, uh, Republican party operative um, under the Bush administration. And so, um, so the, uh, so anyway, so that, so him learning his trade and his father had joined the union and gotten fired. So he's just another kind of tragic dimension to him. But anyway, one of the FBI agents told me, and he, he ran this garage out of his, out of his house in, in a suburb of Birmingham. And one of the FBI agents who, who worked on the case told me that, uh, he would go have his, his car fixed by Troy Ingram, this guy. And I remember thinking like you, Troy, I mean, he could, this is a bomb. This is the master bomb maker of the clan. He could easily have like yeah. major car not work, but he had no fear of that, you know? So it's sort of like, That's if you're amazing. not one of, part of the amazing. vulnerable class, then uh, now, and I can't say today that the FBI would have that kind of immunity from the, the, you know, the MAGA, Clan proto, you know, clansmen. Um, so wow. So <laughs> the book took you twelve years, I believe, to write. Uh, um, we'll go with twelve. It was really seventeen. We'll go with twelve. All right, we'll maybe a little 12, bit. Yeah, that, that's not um, pathetic. How did you sustain your momentum? Did you at some point, you know, look, you know, it's like the proverbial like boxes of note cards and say, oh, my God, what do I do with all this? I'm never going to be able to turn this into a narrative from a author to author kind of sense. Like, how did you keep going? How did you then all put it all together in some kind of narrative form? I, I, I really don't know. I, 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 it, the first draft was 3,700 pages. 
Um, but I think wow. I round, I think I the rounded book, it. The book is not short, by no, the no, way. No, 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 no. It was thirty. I'm sorry. It was thirty four hundred, and I rounded it down. Oh my to 3, god. 000. Yeah, it was thirty four hundred, and I rounded <laughs> it down to three thousand. And I had to cut it by two thirds. And then when I cut it by two thirds, I thought, why is it still fifteen hundred pages? And so then I had to cut yeah. it by another, you know, fifty percent. Um, so uh, I don't know. I never lost uh, lost interest in the subject, and. The new book is taking me almost as long. I, you know, I thought when I was writing, so it was because I was raising children and living life and doing all that. And then I thought, no, and now I don't have that excuse, and it's still taking me that long. Um, I think well, I just, that is the perfect segue. <laughs> yeah. That, that is the perfect segue. <laughs> what is your new book? And it also has a Alabama um, connection, but is a much different story. Yes. So I always say that even though I have not lived in Alabama since I was 17, um, what would I have done if I hadn't come from Alabama? I would have had no career. So, um, so the new book is sort of the cold, the cold war version of, uh, of the civil rights book, which was, I tried to place Birmingham at sort of the moral center of the great domestic, uh, story of our, of the 20th century. And now it's at the, the, Huntsville, Alabama is at the center of the great Cold War epic, which is where Nazis who worked, who built Hitler's ballistic missile, the V2 rocket, which was the first long range ballistic missile, were brought over here as spoils of war after World War II and were put in Huntsville. And they ended up building the Saturn V rocket, which got us to the moon. So the sort of elevator pitch is um, Nazis in Alabama uh, building the moon rocket, winning the Cold War at the time of George Wallace. So the, so I've got a, uh, I've got a lot of narratives going on here with, you know, the uh, civil rights movement in Huntsville, which has sort of never been done in, in, in any detail. Um, a whole different kettle of fish than, than in Birmingham. Um, and, um, and then you've got these, the mass, the dueling, dueling master races on, on the, the old German Aryan master race is on the it ends up being on the side of 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 progress. The southerners, yeah. the way, um, yeah, of necessity, but they do. Right, Werner von Braun, who's the most prominent of these, um, had always claimed uh, he didn't really know you know all the details. He really didn't know Jewish slave labor was being used. Is there any doubt in your mind after having researched that these people were knowing, willing participants as part of the Nazi war machine? Oh, yeah. Well, there, the, um, the, the, the thing that never came out about Von Braun during the Cold War, and I don't know whether the space program would have survived if, if it had, was that the, the slave labor factory that mass produced the V2. So he, he was not directly involved in that because he was on the development side, but his right-hand man was, did run the factory, um, had the highest death rate in, in the concentration camp system. 10,000 people died in the course of making the V2, which was about three times more than died on the receiving end of it um, as a weapon of mass destruction. And so um, – he was he had he was at that at, at that fa- this slave labor factory uh, had seen had seen it at its worst when people corpses were re- literally stacked up in the tunnels it was an underground <laughs> tunnel um, the reason probably most people haven't heard of it was the the camp was called Dora 
And for two reasons. One, it ended up behind this, the, the Iron Curtain um, when the wall came down. And, um, and the other thing was that it was, it was not a, there were no, initially, it was built as a labor factory. And so even though it killed people uh, with abandon, it was not a, a killing camp per se. Um, and there were no Jews there initially because it started in 1943 and the Jews had already been shipped east of it was called the Altreich borders. They wanted to they wanted to get the killing camps, the the, the you know Into Poland, out of you know, yeah out of the, the old you know the German border. So um there ended up being a number of Jews there uh when especially when the eastern camps were being evacuated. They there, a lot of Jews ended up there, but it was not like a it's, so it's 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 sort of escaped the, the Holocaust narrative a little bit. But it was it was really terrible. Oh. It was mostly French uh, Polish and, um, Russian, really Ukrainian. So you don't exactly tell a happy go lucky story. (laughs) Do you, you know, it's the very worst of human nature, but there's in some senses also the best. Have these books and the book that you're working on now left you pessimistic? Have they left you optimistic that there is still there are still people who are willing to point out evil and do something about it. How, how does that kind of leave you after all of this? Well, I remember when I was I was going to Argentina and and Chile a few years ago, and I was like lining up all the atrocity sites I was going to visit. And this friend of mine said, who was helping me said, "She goes, you seem like you seem like a sort of sunny person. Where does all this go?" Um, and I don't, I I have to say that in the age of Trump, I have become much more pessimistic and partly it was, I remember the first talk I gave after Trump was elected and somebody asked me if I would talk to, actually Doug Jones asked me if I would talk to a, to a, a group and I said, oh yeah, sure. And I had like a million speeches and I thought I'll just dust one off. And, um, and kind of fine tune it. And, and it turned out they were all not applicable. And because I realized that when I would talk about this material before, it was definitely the bad old days that we had, that we had gotten beyond. Um, and especially when the book came out, we did seem to be on this trajectory, you know, of, uh, the, the arc of justice seemed to be bending in the right direction. And so, Especially when I would talk to children, they would almost act as if what I was describing was a, a form of mass social insanity, you know. And um, yeah. and then I remember when I went to Birmingham, and one of the things that people wouldn't believe was that um, school children had cheered when Kennedy was assassinated. And people just couldn't accept that. They couldn't believe that. And then I remember I was in Birmingham during the Obama years talking to some uh school teachers who were going back to get their master's in history. And I told them that, and they all kind of looked at each other. And, and I said, what's going on? And they said, they were afraid that if Obama was killed, that their children would have the same reaction. So you see this oh, sort of my. starting. And now with Trump, all the stuff that seemed to be, at least people had been, were ashamed of if they still felt, felt that way was now, uh, had now been, you know, unleashed and, and, uh, was out in the open and had actually won the White House. 
because, you know, the, even yeah. back in the day when a lot of Southerners were still following George Wallace, there was no chance that he was going to win the White House, even though he had a he had some pretty impressive runs for president. Right. And because for various reasons, you know, it's sort of I, I think being weaponized by Fox News and its spawn, um, it was able you know, to to gain the White House, which was just which was just unthinkable at the time even when things were a lot worse for African-Americans, you know. Um, And how does that leave you feeling about Alabama and the, the rest of the MAGA universe? Have they reverted? Have they allowed just um, their inner id to come out? How do you reconcile the fact that the same people who once did come to terms with Civil rights who did elect, um, you know, leaders who enforce the law seem to have now reverted to a Bull Connor era. I can't, I, I can't even answer that. It, it's so, it's so heartbreaking to me. I didn't go down to Birmingham for the, um, 60th anniversary of the church bombing this past week because, uh, I just thought it would just make me sad in the wrong way. You know, the, the yeah. sad in the sense that so many people suffered. And so many people worked so hard to, to make things better, you know, even if they didn't personally suffer. And now to have this and, and you know, uh, Justice Patanji, Patanji Brown Jackson um, gave the uh, gave the sort of keynote there. And it was so depressing to me that the message now is that now the fight is over being able to keep teaching this history because these states are passing laws and it hasn't passed in Alabama yet, but it has in Florida, that this history can't even be taught. And she was talking about how this, the story of the four girls had affected her growing up. And she, you know, born in 1970. And I thought, wow, so the goalposts are now so far off the field. They're, they're so far out of the arena that we're on, in this kind of meta universe of talking about what we can say as opposed to what we're doing, you know? And so that, that really struck me. And the other thing is that, you know, the Alabama, believe it or not, back in the, you know, forties, fifties and sixties had the, had the most liberal uh, legislative delegation, um, probably in the, in, in the country. Now they, they, that sort of skewed because they always, um, they always had to cast these self-preserving votes on race. You know, they never, they never came out right on that. But, you know, Lister Hill created the Hill, the Hill Burton Act, which gave free health care to people. John Sparkman, uh, the senator was the, was the architect of the, the Kennedy's Housing Act, you know, of 61. So they were just extremely, uh, Bob Jones, who was Huntsville's, um, uh, congressman, did the Clean Water Act. I mean, they just were extremely liberal about, you know, government making lives better for people. And now, you know, Doug Jones was briefly the Democratic senator, and he was replaced by Tommy Tuberville, who is, a, yes. in addition to being civically illiterate, you know, is, is now sort of a, a, an impediment to national security by holding up all these, these military promotions. So I don't know, I don't know how it, it turned out that way. And, and sort of the, 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 the barometer for me in a way is that when I was growing up, football was kind of the only religion in town. You know, it was just, and it was the only, it was entertainment, religion, everything. And football is now bigger than it was 
then well now 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 that they lost a game maybe not you know um and uh <laughs> i'm not yeah and uh even with all this competition from the the entertainment industrial complex it's still this sort of like tribal uh like bloodlust um feeling that they get um and i thought well even with all the competition that's still the case and even with there being not much excuse for people to be ill-informed now, I mean, you know, maybe that's stretching it with all the disinformation, but you can, you, you can find out a lot now. The, the vacuum of information there and understanding and knowledge is still so, it's, it's, it's probably even worse than it was when they were just like, when it took a week to get the New York Times in, in Alabama. Um, so I don't, I don't really know. I, I, I feel very sad about it. Um, but I'm, I'm just sort of part of just one of the, the class and this cliche, which is the heartbroken liberal of Alabama. You know, we always get our, there we always go. get our hopes up and then they're all, then, then they're dashed and our hearts are broken. There are a few of you, <laughs> there are a few of you down there. This has been absolutely fascinating. And so we don't leave our <laughs> listeners completely depressed. I think the outcome at least of carry me home is that people matter decisions matter people have agency they can do the right thing they can do the wrong thing um a shop owner can decide yes i'm going to finally desegregate a child can decide to un with unbelievable bravery step off the sidewalk people can choose to do right or choose to do wrong so um, the story hasn't yet been told. I cannot wait for your next book. Um, I hope it's out sooner rather than it's gonna, later. It's going to be two volumes. And they, that's, how, that's how I'm dealing with the, the overriding problem. That's better. <laughs> yeah. That works for me. That works for me. It worked for Robert Caro. So, you know, multi-volumes are the way to go. Um, thank you, Diane, for being with us. Uh, and everyone should go get the book. It's a, really a magnificent, magnificent read. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much, Jen. And thank you for reading. And that was Diane McWhorter. The book, I will be honest with you, my listeners, is long, but it is worth it and it is fascinating. And it tells so many different stories. It tells the story of the really noxious relationship between the police, the Klan, and the industrialists. It tells the story of the civil rights movement. It tells the story of generations that come together in a movement. And it tells the story of this horrible, horrible tragedy that we just recognized in the 60th anniversary. One of the little girls who survived the bombing was the sister of one who had been killed. She lost an eye in the bombing and she is alive today and she reminisced. And when you think of how this changed her life, the lives of all of those people, but the lives of survivors, how their lives were completely changed, how their outlook on life had changed. And yet out of that horrible, horrible tragedy, for the first time, many Americans first realized that the cause of segregation was the cause of death, of brutality, of horrible evil. And so when we get too depressed, um, perhaps we can think back that out of great evil, out of great sadness, can come revival, rehabilitation, 
renewal. And that at least today, we have the history of those events to inspire and carry us through. So if I had one wish for Americans that I think would get us past this very difficult time in history, it would be that everyone read, everyone read good history. And Diane McWhorter has certainly made her contribution to great history. So if you liked this program, please tell your friends. They can listen and follow us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they get their podcasts. Bye-bye.